0: And you can open up your Bibles to John chapter 17. I can't think of a better thing to say when we see Jesus. But yet not I, but Christ in me. To stand there knowing that we are there because of Christ in us. Because of Christ upon us and around us because we have been saturated in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior. No one's gonna stand there and say, I did pretty good, Lord. What up? We'll say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And Lord, this morning, as we open your word, we repeat that, yet not I, but through Christ in me. I need Christ in me. I need Christ around me, I need Christ upon me. I need your spirit to walk through this world and to discern, Lord, what is taking place in this world, how I am to respond. Lord, to discern the righteous from the unholy. I need Christ in me to have the passion ignited that is so necessary for us to continue. Lord, Christ in me for the perseverance, for the strength to endure. Father, not as victims, but as servants, the strength to continue and do all that you have called us and commanded us to do. We need you, Lord. And this morning, as you prayed for us, we want to sit in at least part of the words of that prayer. And may we know your heart for us in these last days. And knowing your heart, be encouraged, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 17. Let's just read a little bit. Pick up at verse 18. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. This morning's teaching is for the mature believer. So i just get that right out front. This is for the faithful follower, for the one who knows and is committed to, clings to Jesus, the mature believer. And if that's you, great, listen up. If that's not you, Great, listen up. And if you think that's you, please listen up. 14th century, uh, David Chitreus, he called John 17 the high priestly prayer. We talked about this a week ago Wednesday. John Knox, that great reformer in the 16th century, deemed John 17 as the holy of holies in scripture. How much time have you spent in John 17? I would encourage you, if you're unfamiliar with it, to become very familiar with it. This is Jesus' longest prayer for you, for me, in the Bible. We cannot undermine the significance of this. I also shared that John Knox, on his deathbed, when asked by his wife what she should read to him, he said, read me that which I started with at the very beginning that great prayer, and she read from John 17. It meant everything to him. It ought to mean everything to us. The high priestly prayer, the holy of holies in scripture, both are good, but there's something far reaching to this prayer, personally significant. Now, it's so interesting to me to watch how God brings things together because we have been studying and talking about and learning about the Holy Spirit for the last five Sundays looking in depth into what Jesus taught us about the Holy Spirit that he promised to give to us. Concurrently, all of a sudden, prayer comes up. (laughs) The Holy Spirit and prayer, which are together synergistic in the Christian life. You don't have one without the other. We need both, the Holy Spirit and prayer, because this prayer is all about our following after Jesus. That is the subject for which Jesus now prays for his followers to to bring us along after three chapters in John 14, 15, and 16 of giving, giving encouragement on the darkest night of his life, Jesus now goes into a prayer of powerful encouragement for us. If it was encouraging in the first century, it is far more encouraging right now here at the end of the age. And so we need this prayer. We need to hear this prayer. We can hang our hopes on this prayer. But before we get to this prayer, I'd like you to turn back to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 in your Bibles. Jesus' sights were set on the kingdom, but not as the apostles thought. In fact, in Luke 19, picking up in verse 11, it says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he needed to correct that. And I love Jesus because he doesn't just come right out and say, hey, the kingdom's not gonna appear immediately. He gives them a parable, a parable that has great meaning and understanding. And I wanna take you through it real quick. real quickly. Listen to this, he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then returned. The nobleman is the Lord, no question. And he called 10 of his slaves and he gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. 10 minas, 10 minas. A mina was about 100 talents, which would be, well, not a hundred towns, there's about a hundred days wages, Amina, mina hundred days wages. So think of Amina as about a third of a year's salary, okay? 10 times that. And he distributed this out to them. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's the world. That's the world's response to Jesus. And when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, you and me, to whom he had given the money, be called to him so that they might know or he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, and by the way, appearing before this nobleman as the slaves appear before him, what he's talking about here, what he's describing in parable form is the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat of Christ, not judgment day, but the judgment of believers before Jesus for the reception of rewards for services rendered for what we've done, deeds accomplished. And so that's what he's talking about, this this Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And it says that the first appeared, verse 16, saying, Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over 10 cities. 10 cities. He's talking about the kingdom. It's such an, an amazing parable because he's laying in line promises for the kingdom come. And this faithful slave will now be in authority over 10 cities to the second. The second came saying, verse 18, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, master, here's your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man and you take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. These are those who are afraid of Jesus and afraid to do anything. Oh, they believe. They're slaves, they're followers, but they're not doing anything. They just don't want to step out of line. They are locked either by tradition or legalism or just plain laziness. I was afraid of you, they say in verse 21. Well he said to him verse 22 by your own words I will judge you you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come I would have collected it with interest. Maybe not as much interest in this season as you would have in a previous season. That was a joke. Verse 24 Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. Note the punishment. The punishment is losing what he has and it goes to someone else. That's the extent of it. And they said to him, Master, he has 10 minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, and now he turns his attention to the world, the Christ-rejecting world, who did not want to see me reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. And that's final judgment. It's a kingdom-seeking parable. And I could spend the whole morning just on the parable. We could talk about it because there's so much here. It is so rich in talking about the kingdom. They say they think the kingdom's coming immediately. He makes it very, very clear the kingdom's not immediate. Oh, the kingdom's coming. But what does he tell them? Look back again at verse 13. He gave them 10 minus. In in Matthew, it's the parable of the talents. They're two unique parables, but it's similar. He gives something to a servant, and he says, do something with this. In fact, specifically, he says, do business until I come. Do business until I come. What kind of business? The King James translates, occupy till I come. Occupy till I come. So for anyone who's ever wondered, how long, oh Lord? Have you said that recently? Or something like, why must we wait? Why do I have to continue to ponder through these days? For anyone who's ever cried out, come Lord Jesus. Jesus says, stay. I say, come, he says, stay. I say, let's get out of here. He says, hold on. I say, I'll meet you in the clouds. He says, not yet. Jesus says, stay, do my business, occupy till I come. He asks his disciples then and now to take and to hold spiritual turf. We're gonna talk about that a lot more when we get to Joshua in the fall. But he asks his followers to pray. He asked his people imbued with the Holy Spirit to be the restraining influence against evil in the world. Do you realize that we're that simply by our presence? Not because we're such great people, not because we're so righteous, but because we're present as the church in the world, imbued, given, saturated by the Holy Spirit, we automatically become a system of restraint, an influence that holds back the tide. Just as Adam and Eve were told at the very beginning by God to rule the world, to reign over it, to subdue it. What God was talking about back then is the same thing Jesus is implying right now, and that's subduing the evil of the world. And so here we are, the church, talking to mature believers here, the church, given the Holy Spirit, restraining restraining wickedness and evil in this world. Speaking of... The man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, Antichrist, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Do you see it? Do you see lawlessness at work right now? It's already at work, Paul writes, that was 2,000 years ago. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Notice the way Paul says that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, what restrains? And then in verse 7, he says, he who now restrains. What restrains implies refers to the church. He who restrains is the Holy Spirit. Remember what we've talked about, the Holy Spirit given to the church given to the individual follower and given to the church at large, the spirit and the church restraining influence. And when he say he who now restrains will do so till he's taken away, taken away undoubtedly refers to the rapture of the church. Because when the church is taken away, guess what? The spirit goes too, because once he's given, he will never be taken from you. So when we're caught up, the spirit comes right with us. Now, I had to pause and say that because we don't restrain evil because we're all that in a bag of tracks. We restrain evil because the Holy Spirit is in, upon, and alongside Christians and the church in this world. So the very presence of the church, you simply being an aspect, a part of, a toe or a finger or an elbow of the church, you are part of Holding back, stemming the tide, if you will, of evil in this world. Restraining evil lawlessness. Jesus knew this firsthand. Staying would not be easy. See, holding back evil is kind of like standing on the shores of the beach and trying to hold back a big wave. (laughs) Not easy to do. Now, the Spirit empowers us to do something we could not do on our own. Jesus knew that staying, what he was asking of us, what he required of the church and has asked of the church for 2,000 years would not be easy. So he prayed. Most powerful thing anyone can do. He prayed beginning first with his apostles. Look back in John, now John 17, look back at verse six. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. And he's talking about the apostles. Such as they were at this point in their lives, they've stuck with me. They've kept your word. Yes, immediately after this, they're gonna scatter like frightened rabbits, but, but up till now, they've done well. And they've done well enough, enough has been planted and embedded in their hearts that after the passion of the weekend, they would be restored. They would be able to stand up. And boy, once the Holy Spirit was given to them, they would take off. But he says, you've given them to me. He's talking about the apostles. Matthew chapter 10, verse two tells us the names. Do you know them all? Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James, Jacob, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, whose name is Jacob, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Thaddeus also called Labaius in the scriptures or Judas, not Iscariot. That's my favorite name for Thaddeus. (laughs) Simon, the zealot. And finally, number 12, Judas Iscariot, the one who also betrayed him. Look at John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The son of perdition, the word perdition also translates waste. And he's talking about Judas Iscariot. Jesus here in this prayer recognizes before Judas has even shown up in the garden to betray him, recognizes that Judas' life became such a waste because Jesus guarded all 12 of them during the entire ministry, looked after, cared for, discipled all 12 men, including Jesus, keeping the betrayer as close to him as possible, not to keep him out of trouble, but to give him every chance to believe, every chance to have a life of substance and meaning, but he becomes the son of perdition, the son of... Of waste. So Jesus prays for the apostles. And there were 12. By the way, if you have a hard time remembering all their names, they'll be posted in New Jerusalem, so you can just read them right there on the foundation stones. If you forget, Revelation 21:14, the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. But wait if Judas is out, who's the 12th man? Who's the 12th man? It's not the Seattle fans. (laughs) Some say the 12th man was Matthias. And you can read his story in Acts chapter 1, only time actually he's mentioned in the New Testament, where he wins the lotto to replace Judas. He's named among the apostles. And then after that, he disappears into obscurity. Might his name be on one of the foundation stones? You know what's interesting about Matthias? Some claim, some think that perhaps he went by another name that we see in the scriptures, Zacchaeus. We little man perhaps became a great apostle. We don't know. Others say that Matthias did stick in the mission that he ultimately died a faithful martyr's death but it's all kind of obscure. It's not mentioned in the Bible. We know nothing about Matthias. Really, after Acts chapter one, he sort of disappears. So so I think, and we've said this, that I believe the seat was filled by Paul. I think Paul was Jesus' choice for the 12th man. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse one, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Jesus is praying for all the apostles, for the 12. I think Paul is number 12. 1 Corinthians 15, verse eight, Paul says, last of all, 12th man, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And yet Paul refers to himself as an apostle, claims apostleship, functioned as an apostle, perhaps more brightly than any of the apostles in terms of his life and mission. So there are the 12. You can read the first 11 in Matthew chapter 10, remove Judas and put in Paul. If you want to put in Matthias, I'm not going to argue. We'll just check the stones later in New Jerusalem. But those are the 12 with capital A's, the apostles. Now I say capital A because the apostles had certain authority that belonged to them authority by which and through which they would write the scriptures, the New Testament. They would seed the church in the world. They had unique positions. There are no other apostles, capital A, in the world, but there have been and there are many apostles, lowercase a. And I make that distinction because there's all kinds of stuff going on even in the church today where people are claiming to be apostles with a capital A. I don't think the Bible supports that. But there are apostles, there are apostles in the world. In fact, even before you get out of the New Testament, there are other apostles mentioned other than the 12. Listen to this, Acts chapter 14, verse 14. And you can check these, this is a quick list. You can run those later. But Acts 14, 14, Barnabas is called an apostle. Romans 16, verse seven. Andronicus and Junius. Are both referred to as outstanding among the apostles, not outstanding because the apostles think they're cool, but outstanding as apostles. Andronicus and Junius, and by the way, interestingly, Junius is a woman. It's a she, her name in the feminine. Philippians chapter 2, verse 25 mentions another apostle, Epaphroditus. We would say Epaphroditus, but his name is Epaphroditus. And Paul says he is also your messenger, but the word messenger is apostolos. So he's referred to by Paul as an apostle. Apollos in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 is named. And then in verse 9, Paul refers to us apostles having just talked about Apollos. So we think he's saying that Apollos is called an apostle. Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul, referring to when he went to Jerusalem, says, I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the brother of the Lord. Jacob, the brother of the Lord. Wait a minute. Jacob, the brother of the Lord, for whom we have the book entitled James, but it should be entitled Jacob. He was not one of the 12 apostles, but Paul says, I didn't see any of the apostles except for him, implying apostleship there. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, we read Paul and Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul refers to himself and the other two all together collectively as apostles of Christ. So Timothy and Silas, Paul called apostles, little a, but referred to them also as apostles. This is important. That is a minimum of 10 apostles in the New Testament aside from the original twelve. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And these positions remain in play. These, what I call, leadership gifts in the church that the Lord has given. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are still in play today. Now, apostles today don't bear the same authority as those who are gonna be named on the foundation stones. How do you know? 12 stones, 12 apostles, not 1,200 apostles, or 1,500 apostles, or lists of apostles on every stone. Just the original 12, minus Judas, plus, I think, Paul, We'll see their names. They are unique in position, unique in authority as given by Jesus. But there are apostles today. Hey, the word apostle, apostolos in the Greek simply means sent with a message. Someone who goes out sent with a message. We're talking about church planters. We're talking about evangelists. We're talking really about any Christian that has been sent out, Felice, with a message. Would have the 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 role of apostleship. An apostle, don't, don't get all hung up on, wow, but, but I don't know, can an apostle, an apostle be a woman? Well, ask Junius. Apostle has more to do with what you do than who you are. Listen, our identity, every one of us, is disciples of Jesus Christ, bondservants of the Lord. So whether a bondservant is an apostle or a prophet, or an evangelist, or a pastor, or a teacher, or a minister of any kind, that's what they do, who they are, is beloved by Jesus' disciples. That's who we are. So don't get hung on on titles. Jesus is not all into titles. By the way, above all, there is the first and greatest apostle, and his name is Jesus. Jesus, an apostle? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the first apostle, the first sent with a message. So understanding that role, understanding that action of, of an apostle, hey, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, shepherds, ministers, followers, we are still on mission Stay. Jesus says, stay. He is still saying, stay. And if you've been around recently, you know this, but listen, in John 17, Jesus prays specifically for you. That to me is what makes this prayer so amazing. He's actually praying, Corinne, for you, he's actually praying, Robert. For you, this is what is so stunning. Look at verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the apostles, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Is there anybody in this auditorium this morning who believes in Jesus who didn't come to faith through the word? You just kind of one day went, "Ah, I'm gonna believe in Jesus. No, the word of the apostles, the word of God got into your heart And you came to faith because of them, through them, because of their work. Jesus is now praying for us. And suddenly this apostolic prayer becomes incredibly personal. It's not just for them. It's for you and for me. And in this prayer, Jesus calls on us to stay. And as he prays, he shows us here how to occupy until he comes How to do business until he comes. What are we supposed to do? We're staying, okay, great. We're restraining evil. I don't even know how. What do I do? How do I live until you come? Well, let's outline that. I'm gonna give you seven shuns. Seven shuns to help us occupy until he comes. And the first one is jubilation. Jubilation. Look at verse 13. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves, jubilation. This is part of how you minister uniquely in this world. This is what we are to do as we wait until he comes. This is our business. <laughs> jubilation is our business. Now, if the jubilee shun you don't like that because I said shuns, well, let me give you a shun. Shun empty sorrow. Jubilation or shun empty sorrow. I say empty sorrow because there are sorrows that are deep. There are griefs that are rich. There are pains that are profound, that are part of our experience. But man, shun empty sorrow. Shun that pathetic, just woe is me mentality. Jesus says, as he prays for you and prays for me, he says, he wants my joy made full in them. My joy made full. That's a recurring theme in John's gospel. My joy in you. In John chapter three, verse 29, John the Baptist said it. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. So John the Baptist says that. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom, but every time I hear him speak, I am filled with joy. I love to hear his voice. Listen, if the friend of the bridegroom is so full of joy, how much more the bride? How much more you and me? I mean, think about it seriously. If the best man at a wedding is more joyful than the bride, something's wrong. There's something amiss. Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. John 16, 24, until now, Jesus says, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Joy is haran in the Greek. It's gladness as a state of being. It's not like happiness, which is passing. Happiness, which just kind of comes and goes. No, joy the joy of which the scripture speaks is deep and rich and constant. It's, it's, it's a state of mind. It's how I live. Haran, joy and full is from the word pleroma or romanon in this context, which literally means filled to the brim. Remember the glass in the pitcher from last week? And we often think of that glass overflowing until we drop the glass into the pitcher and it disappears into the water and it is completely saturated, which is the life of the follower of Jesus walking in the Holy Spirit. That that joy overflowing. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Now I know we've talked about this a lot recently. I know we've landed in this place, but I need to be absolutely clear. This is not Rick pushing back against those who are melancholy and somber and depressed. I actually have deep compassion for that and for someone who is struggling with every breath of life. I get that, but I need to be clear about this based on what I read in the scripture. Joy defines faith. Joy defines faith. If there's no joy, Where's the faith? If there's no joy, do I really trust him? Beyond, regardless of, in spite of my circumstances, there ought to be joy because of him as the friend of the bridegroom loves the sound of the groom's voice. So the bride who has the groom has a joy incomprehensible, a joy beyond understanding, And Jesus speaks of joy no less than seven times on this dark night of his soul, seven times. He's talking about joy. On the eve of crucifixion, you tell me that you can't have joy in dark times. Joy defines faith. The Lord knows this is a promise worth paying for, not only because following him produces joy, but because a joyful heart is spiritually obtained by faith. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize it's second only to love on the fruit of the Spirit? It is the second one, love, joy, following immediately on love. You can put it this way, the Holy Spirit is not known for growing or evangelists or puddle-glum preachers or Debbie Downer disciples. It's not what he does. And again, it doesn't mean life won't be hard. It won't get tough at times. But if you're lacking, and here's the key, if you're lacking the joy of the Lord, pray for it. Don't sit and wallow in the sorrow. Pray for the joy because Jesus did. Jesus prayed that your joy would be made full. Paul said in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. Is there ever a time, Paul, when I can take a break from rejoicing? No. Rejoice in the Lord always. He repeats it in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. See, that's the key. You want to rejoice always? You got to be in prayer all the time. And if your joy is lacking, you ask for joy. And I know that sounds simple, but when was the last time you said, Jesus, I just need joy. Would you bring your joy? Would you make my joy full in you? You can, you can pray that. You can ask for joy. Well, I'm just not in the mood. Well, get in the mood <laughs> and pray for it. Ask for it. In everything, give thanks. First Thessalonians 5.18 for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse eight. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. How do you rejoice with a joy inexpressible? You believe in him because joy defines faith. And if there is no joy, you have to wonder, where is my faith? Shun empty sorrow, jubilation. That's the first one. Verse 14, Jesus says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. And by the way, remember, as he's praying this, the apostles are listening. They're right there. He doesn't skip a beat. He goes right from teaching them right into lifting his eyes to heaven and praying. So they're hearing him say this. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. What do you think that did to the apostles to hear? I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Stay. Stay, And this is so important as our, as our staying continues, as the age continues on, as I say, how long, O oh Lord, and I am still here waiting as we stay. He doesn't ask that we're taken out of the world. Instead, he prays for, number two, protection. Protection, jubilation, and protection. He doesn't pray for our extraction, not yet. The day of our extraction will come any time is imminent, but Jesus asked the Father to divinely keep, notice that, keep them from the evil one. That word keep is also preserve or protect. To keep, preserve, protect us from the evil one. Why? Why is that so important? Remember the restraining influence we talked about a few minutes ago? Carson says, insofar as they side." with the revelation of Jesus, the disciples infuriate the world and the world snarls with savage rage. The cosmic spiritual nature of the conflict is laid bare right in this prayer. That Jesus has to pray for the keeping, for the safeguarding, for the protecting and preservation of the apostles and by extension, you and me who believe through their teaching is is proof positive there's going to be pushback there is going to be conflict there is going to be difficulty you ever wonder why such good news is met with such resistance why don't people just receive jesus i mean this is this is someone who will save your life this is the promise of a life for all eternity this is not legalism and and and, you know church rules and regulations and strict living and taking away your fun? No, your joy is made full. Why don't people just receive that? Why is there so much difficulty with this? Why does even just speaking the name of Jesus produce hostility in your own family? Why? Because of the evil one. Because there is evil in the world and those opposed to Jesus will be opposed to you. Evil abhors restraint. Wickedness hates being restrained, held back, being kept from doing whatever it wants to do. Anytime evil is restrained, it wants to push back. And so Jesus prays that you would be kept, protected from evil. The evil one. This is, by the way, not something you can do. This is something he prays for you, for me, protection. But we need to be aware of this. And by the way, when he says, keep them from the evil one, evil one there is tau and and it, it can translate either the evil one or just the evil. But here in the context, it is the evil one he's talking about. Context is what helps us understand, is it evil or is it the evil one? Generic evil or the evil one? It's the evil one who drives the generic evil. And the context explains that, but John also quotes Jesus and uses the phrase himself again to mean the person of the devil. He's talking specifically about Satan. 1 John five nineteen. we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That he has usurped the authority given to Adam and Eve back in the garden He usurped that authority, and now he is the ruler of the world, as Jesus calls him three times in this gospel. He's the ruler of the world. He is the evil one. He's the one we need protection from. And in these days, he is pulling out all the stops. Satan's grip is unquestionably tightening in an end times, end run, stranglehold on this world. He's he's trying to get it all done. He has a sense of the times probably better than many of us in the church. In Revelation, when we we see that ultimately he is finally completely revoked spiritually, cast to earth so that he cannot even appear before God, which currently he can, read the book of Job. But when he's finally cast out and that visa revoked and he is stuck here back on the planet, he goes nuts. And the Bible says, knowing he only has a short time I think he already knows I mean he will really know then he'll know then I got three and a half years to mess it up as bad as I can right now 2,000 years at the end of the age he knows and if you feel like the pushback is more difficult it's more challenging my friends that is why Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago for protection against the evil one for you and me today because we're going to need it This is the only rational explanation, by the way, for what we see in terms of violence and deception and lawlessness right now. And you can find it in all manner of institutions. Media, we've known that for a long time. Entertainment, technology, education, sports, business, government, science. All of these institutions, many of which we used to have some faith in, some trust in, but have all begun to show their true colors and to pronounce and to stand for and to propagate evil in this world. This world needs this restraining influence like never before. And we need protection from what is going on and from what the evil one desires to do. And if Jesus prayed for us to be kept or protected from the evil one, we got to ask the tough question, and here it is. Are we part of the restraint or part of the problem? Am I part of the restraint? Like I'm restraining evil by my behavior, by my actions, by my pursuit of holiness? Am I one of the, those restrainers, or am I one of those who's saying, bring it on? Bring it on. The word was what? Protection. If you want to use a shun phrase, here it is. Shun the evil one. Shun the evil one. Shun things evil. Deny things wicked. Reject things impure. Rather than receiving just a bit on the side. Because if I'm receiving a bit on the side, I am not restraining evil in this world. I am encouraging it. Jesus prayed earlier, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Matthew 6, 13, I remind you again, that's what we're headed to, the power and the kingdom and the glory, and it is awesome, and the future before us is marvelous. That's what we're looking for, that's what we're headed for. Restrain evil now, shun the evil one now. Don't embrace it, even in the smallest forms. James 4, 7 says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Getting sick of his attacks? Resist. Don't give in. Give in, you just make a bed for him in the house. Resist, and he will ultimately flee from you. So Jesus prays protection, so that we might have the ability to shun the evil one, which now engages the third shun, jubilation, protection, sanctification. Sanctification. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So part of what we're doing this morning is being sanctified. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And then Jesus says, curiously, for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Sanctification or the third shun, shun unclean things. Shun unclean things. Brothers and sisters, you know this by now. I hardly even need to say it, but I will. The Word of God has a powerful sanctifying effect in our lives. If you find yourself more receptive to evil, more receptive to things that you know as a follower of Jesus you ought not be receptive to, you probably need some Word. Because the more I'm in the word, the more I am not receptive to those things, the more I see them clearly for what they are. The word of God has a sanctifying effect against the unclean things of the world. Psalm 119, verse nine, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. How? He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Now listen to that, note that. Paul said that he might sanctify her having cleansed her. Do you realize that sanctification is not cleansing? We often kind of mix the two, mash the two up together, but sanctification is not cleansing. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, Paul says that he sanctifies her. To be sanctified is not just to be washed. And we know this because of what Jesus prays in verse 19 when he says, For their sakes I sanctify myself. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't Jesus clean? Isn't Jesus perfect? Isn't he absolutely holy? So how does Jesus sanctify himself? And it goes to the meaning of the word. Sanctification, sanctify is hagiosun, where we get the word hagios, saints, hagiosun, which means to make holy, to consecrate, or to separate from the profane. Jesus says, for their sakes, I separate myself. For their sakes, I consecrate myself. Let me give you a, a tangible way to look at that. It's like the utensils that were used in the temple. Those, you know, bowls and censers and, and, and shovels and forks and pans, all those things that were used for the work in the, in the temple, those normal things, a fork to me in my house is just a fork. And by the way, all the forks are missing out of the drawer this morning. I don't know where they go. It's like forks and pens and scissors, I can never find any of the three things in my house. I don't know why. Maybe it's just a personal problem. But forks in the temple were not like the daily use forks in your home. They were consecrated. They were set apart not to be used for any other purpose. Those, those pans and bowls were not to be used for anything. Man, in, in Daniel chapter five, we read the, the story of that blowhard Belshazzar who's the leader of Babylon at the time. His father actually is away on a campaign. And so he's in charge and he's just partying it up. And he calls for those utensils to be taken out of the treasury where they stole them out of the temple. And they now have them in the treasury in Babylon. He says, go get, go get those, those golden cups and bowls. Let's drink from them. And they all are getting drunk using the consecrated utensils from the temple of the Lord. And you may remember the story, but a hand appears and starts writing and says, Belshazzar, I mean, in essence, this is not what the Bible says, but if I'm just gonna translate it rick's way, I'd say Belshazzar. (laughs) They're consecrated. Jesus says, I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself. I am set apart to God for their sake. Sanctify them. Set them apart. You are to be set apart from the world. You are to be different. People should notice. The whole Jesus freak thing that came out of the late 80s and 90s, man, that's a good thing. Oh, you're one of those Jesus people. How do you know? Because I'm consecrated. Because I'm not like the world. I don't act like the world, look like the world, behave like the world. I have been consecrated, sanctified. This is something the word of God does. It doesn't just cleanse you, it sets you apart. How so? Because the more I know the word, the more I discern between righteousness and evil in the world, the more clear it is to me. And honestly, the easier it is to choose right things when I know what they are. And the more impetus and encouragement I have to be holy. And that is a good thing. I know the world says otherwise, but holiness, purity, righteousness, these are good. This is what we're called to, to be set apart. 2 Timothy 2, verse 20, Paul describes it perfectly. He says, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, Some to honor, some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these that is, from wickedness, worldly chatter, ungodliness he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. This is what Jesus prayed for you that you would be so set apart and consecrated in this world that you would be useful. Not only for the restraining of evil, but for every good work that continues to happen in these last days. The sanctified life is simply the life set apart. Useful for the good work, which is number four, mission. Mission. Look again at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. This is profound. How was Jesus sent into the world? incarnationally. Jesus now prays, Father, as you sent me into the world, I send them into the world, meaning incarnationally. Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, summed up in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You now, sent by Jesus, have an incarnational ministry. That is... We dwell in this world and the world sees his glory. Glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. They see Jesus in you. Maybe I should ask that question. Do they see Jesus in you? Because as we've been talking about over the last several weeks, as he is in you and you are in him, we are back to the very reason why we must stay in this world for now, we are on an incarnational mission, a mission to represent Jesus, not just to preach Jesus at the world, but to reveal Jesus in the world. It's why you're here, just as he revealed the Father in the world. How? How do we do that? Okay, you start by praying like Jesus. Pray like Jesus. I'm a little dismayed, and maybe I shouldn't be, and the Lord... He disciplines me from time to time for paying attention to any numbers whatsoever. But from time to time, I look at our YouTube channel and I know, I know how many people have tuned in to re-watch something or maybe to watch something live stream or at home for the first time. And I, I was dismayed when I saw that our teaching in John 17, the first half, Pray Like Jesus, it's just called Pray Like Jesus, got the least number of hits of any teaching recently. Honestly, that should have gotten more than any other. That should have blown up the channel, not because we care about blowing up the channel, but pray like Jesus. I wanna pray like Jesus. Don't you wanna pray like Jesus? I mean, that would revolutionize our prayer and our prayer lives, and that's why we're taking two Wednesday nights on it. So you're welcome to tune in or, or come back this next Wednesday as we finish, pray like Jesus. But if you wanna be on mission, on point in an incarnational mission in this world, you've gotta pray like Jesus. It's the most powerful thing that you can do. And by the way, with that, as we're on mission, we need to shun isolation. Or I could say shun insulation. I heard this recently from Skip Heitzig, and I I love the way he put this. He said, one of the responses of believers to the world has been to isolate. The monastic movement started this way, you know, a man becomes a, 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 a monk and he goes off and he lives in a monastery or a woman becomes a nun in the Catholic church and, and, and kind of separate out, trying to separate, trying to consecrate, the idea's right, but the behavior misses the mission to step out of the world. And, and Heintzik puts it like this, and I've heard this a lot recently. Oh, I'd love to live in a Christian city Or neighborhood where every single neighbor loves Jesus. You know, I think that describes heaven. That's heaven. That's our future. That's not on earth. And Jesus is saying, stay on mission. Don't isolate. Don't insulate yourself. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, go, baptize people, teach people in my name, make it happen, stay. But stay on point, stay on mission, jubilation, protection, sanctification, mission, Or as we said, shun empty sorrow, shun the evil one, shun unclean things, shun isolation and insulation. To be set apart and consecrated doesn't mean that we step out of the world. No, we are still in the world, but we're consecrated in the world. Now, the last three are very closely related, so listen up. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And again, this means all of the above that he's been praying applies to us. This prayer is for you and for me as much as it is for the 12. Right here, right now, verse 21, that they may all be one. How are we doing? Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Think again of the glass and the pitcher from last week. Get that picture of the pitcher in your mind. And I love the idea of, of, of dropping in and being saturated by Jesus. If you didn't see last week, we had a pitcher of water, we had a cup, we filled the cup and said that's what most people think about being filled with the Spirit. Actually, it's more like this and we drop the cup into the pitcher and it just disappears. You can hardly even see the glass anymore. And it's such a profound, simple picture of what it means to be in him and him in us, even as he prays right here. But imagine the number of glasses just in this fellowship alone all soaking in the same picture of Jesus. That's really even the broader picture. I didn't have enough, I didn't have a big enough picture to do that this morning. But if we just started dropping Holy Spirit filled people into the picture that is Jesus, that's what we're talking about. That is a a unity we have yet to fully experience. I think we get snapshots of it, I think we experience it from time to time in, in brotherhood. In sisterhood and in our fellowship, we kind of sense those things. And that's why we say things like, I just want to move to a Christian state. I just want to go somewhere where I'm surrounded by believers. Well, that's why we gather on Sunday morning. Because the rest of the time, we're often not surrounded by believers. We're consecrated in the world. But this is a beautiful picture. Unification, by the way, that's number five, unification. Jesus prays for this, asks for it because as he's already declared, the more unified we are, the more the world can see and believe the love of God. As we are unified, unique and distinct as we are, and hey, let's, let's admit it, we're a bunch of weird people. I mean weird in terms of peculiar. We all have our idiosyncrasies, our peculiarities, we have our likes, our dislikes, our affinities, all of that going on in our lives, and yet there's something that draws us together. And it's not because you like the Beatles the way I do. It's not because you play the guitar like I play the guitar so we can talk guitar. That's not what draws us together. It's Jesus, it's Jesus. And some of you are praying for me that I would get away from the Beatles, I understand that. Please keep praying. But we gather around the person and name of Jesus. We're unified by someone that unifies in a way that nothing else can. If you've ever been to a football game down in Seattle, and I've been there, it's amazing how unified the crowds are until someone's had two or three beers. Until you're leaving and you're in the parking lot, and now that jerk is cutting me off from getting out of here and getting home. And the reality is we have a unifying force in Jesus that is so profound, the shun that goes along with unification is shun division. Shun division. That goes for the church worldwide, which sadly has many divisions. It goes for the church in our community, church to church to church, that there are dividing walls between us has got to be a heartbreak to the Lord. It goes to this fellowship, shun division. You have a problem with someone else at the bridge, go make it right. Go talk to them. You had a problem with me, please make an appointment. I may be busy that day, but please, please, Try, I'm kidding. Shun division. This is such a simple but important aspect of our staying in the world, our sanctification, all that we've been talking about, our jubilation, our mission, shun division. Are we willing to do the down and dirty, roll up our sleeves, uncomfortable, hard work of loving each other? It's not easy. I get it. It's not easy to love each other when we've offended each other and we do that just by walking by sometimes. It's easy to offend. I do it all the time. I've told you I'm an equal opportunity offender. This is sometimes just what happens. What I'm saying to you is this, if you are discontent, if you're frustrated, if you're upset, if you're offended, don't divide. Work it out. We can work it out. See, the Beatles even knew that much. Work it out. Love demands unity. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. I I loved that Wednesday night we're out on the hillside and we're having worship. That was a great time, it was really cool. I'm looking forward now to the next one, the first Wednesday of August. We'll be right out here just worshiping together. Great turnout of people. But what was so cool about it for me wasn't just the time of worship, but it's how the worship yielded the fellowship. And it's how when we finished the last note, no one wanted to leave and everybody was hanging out and talking in the parking lot. We were there for a good hour afterwards just talking. Hank comes up to me and he said, and I may get the quote wrong, but but it was something to the effect of, this is such a sweet fellowship and it warmed my heart because I looked around and I went, you know, <laughs> it really is, it really is. What, what, a, what a wonderful group of people that get to be together and you know what makes us wonderful? It is Christ in us, yet not I, but Christ in me. And it does, it makes this a wonderful fellowship. Hold to that, pray for unity, shun division if you're in conflict with someone else in this church or even in another church if you're in conflict with another believer in this world go make it right that is not me asking you that is jesus praying that we would be unified ephesians 4 verse 2 with all humility and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Jesus continues in verse 22, the glory with which which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And while Jesus seems to hear repeat this prayer for unification, he's not only praying for the church, he is praying about the church. Meaning, number six, transformation. He's praying for our transformation. As he says, the glory you've given me, I've given them that they may be perfected, he said, in unity. That's his prayer, that we be perfected in unity, transformed, the shun that goes along with that, shun assimilation to the world. Oh, be, be transformed. Paul says, Romans twelve two: do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And note again that he says in verse 22, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Not I will give to them. He's not praying right here, speaking of our future glorification. He's talking about glory that's already at work. That caught my eye. Wait a minute. We already have some glory going on. Right now, he's already given us of his glory, and it's a glory that transforms us. That's, I believe, what Paul's talking about. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or John, 1 John 3 verse 2, beloved, now we're children of God, and it has not yet appeared as as yet what we will be. We know when he appears, we'll be like him, because we'll see him just as he is. There's a process underway of glorification that is changing us. That's transformation, But I I said these last three are closely related. Note this, unification, transformation, glorification. That's number seven. Glorification, as Jesus says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me from from before the foundation of the world. Glorification which means when we see Jesus, just seeing Jesus is gonna get his glory all over us, splashing on us, unifying us, transforming us. But right now, he is unifying and transforming us for that moment, for that ultimate glorification, that eternally life-changing event. When we see him, we will be made like him, instantly glorified, Now, we're going to talk more about that on Wednesday night, but in the meantime, the shun that goes along with glorification is this, shun the approval of the world. Shun the approval of the world. Look for the approval of Jesus. Look for that which pleases God. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord as we look upon that, that glory shines on us. We see that glory and we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. His glory glorifies. Paul says, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So, So he's asked us to stay, just stay, be encouraged. He is still asking apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors, shepherds, ministers, followers, and slaves of every position to stay. How do we know he's still asking? Because we're still here. And as long as we're here, Jesus is saying, stay on mission, stay on point. Be encouraged, jubilation. There's joy in this. Protection, sanctification, mission, unification, transformation, glorification. Shun empty sorrow, shun the evil one, shun unclean things, shun isolation and insulation from the world. Shun division, shun assimilation to the world and shun the approval of this world. Why? Oh, listen, because your desire to be with Jesus pales in comparison to his desire to have you with him. His desire is greater by far. He wants you to be with him that he might show you his glory. Again verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. What you think you long to see Jesus, how much more does he long for you to be there and for you to see him. We say, "Oh Lord, rapture me today." And I think Jesus response was, "I can't wait." I want to rapture you today. I want you here. I want you home. I want you in the presence of my glory right now. But for now, stay. Just stay. He longs for you. He's coming for you. So be encouraged. Be at peace and occupy until he comes. And if you're not a Christian, listen, we're coming for you. We're coming for you because we know the joy of the Lord and desire that same for you. We want you to see him, to love him, to know his love, experience his grace, and be ever changed by seeing him in all his glory. If you want that, I invite you this morning to come and pray with us if you struggle with any of these shuns as one of those believers, believers of Jesus, whether you think you're mature or not. And I, I think it's, it's interesting to me that oftentimes those who think they're mature believers are actually immature, and those who think they're immature believers are actually far more mature than they realize. But wherever you are in your relationship with Jesus, whether you don't know him or you've known him a long time, if there's any of this that you need to pray about, then like Jesus, pray.